0: Hello, and welcome to this PriMed podcast that is focused on hypertension management. I'm Dr. Danielle Hebert, and I'm an adult nurse practitioner in primary care, as well as an assistant professor and coordinator of the adult gerontology primary care nurse practitioner track in the Tan Chin Fen Graduate School of Nursing at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School. While this episode is relevant to all primary care clinicians, it's part of a curriculum I've developed with Primed and designed specifically to help nurse practitioners earn the pharmacology credits they need to maintain their licensure. Check out the other courses within the curriculum at www.primed.com forward slash Hebert. Thank you for joining me as we dive into the most recent data regarding hypertension. We'll begin with a brief review of the current evidence for managing hypertension, and then apply this information using case studies to address common patient scenarios in primary care. First, let's go over some facts and data on hypertension. According to the CDC, hypertension was identified as a primary or contributing cause of just over 691,000 deaths in the United States. The CDC also reports that nearly 120 million adults have hypertension with a systolic blood pressure that is more than 130 or a diastolic blood pressure that's more than 80, yet only 25% of them have their blood pressure controlled. Its associated costs are around $131 billion annually, and it affects men more than women. It's more common in non-Hispanic black adults, followed by non-Hispanic white adults, non-Hispanic Asian adults, and anti-Hispanic adults. However, control of blood pressure in adults who are taking medication is found to be higher in non-Hispanic whites, followed by a tie for second place with non-Hispanic blacks and Hispanics, and then followed by non-Hispanic Asians. A CDC study indicates that one in 25 of those between the ages of 12 and 19 have hypertension, while one in 10 have an elevated blood pressure. Interestingly, the prevalence of high blood pressure in youth decreased from the years of 2001 to 2016, but the number of youths classified as having high blood pressure actually increased due to changes in the guidelines during that time frame. We know there are serious long-term complications that can develop with hypertension, including cardiovascular diseases such as coronary heart disease, stroke, and renal failure. During this podcast, I will be referencing a couple of guidelines including the 2017 Guideline for the Prevention, Detection, Evaluation, and Management of High Blood Pressure in Adults by the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association Task Force on Clinical Practice Guidelines. Also, the 2014 JNC8 Hypertension Guideline. And you can find the references for these guidelines in the reference list associated with the podcast. Let's jump into our case reviews and meet our first patient. Mr. R is a 45 year old male that has been our patient for the past five years. He has scheduled an appointment today due to an elevated blood pressure that was first detected on the blood pressure machine at his local pharmacy, something that I seem to encounter fairly often with my patients. In the office today, his pulse is 72, his blood pressure is 142 over 86, his height is 5 foot 10 inches, his weight is 199 pounds, and he has a BMI of 28.6. He has no medical history, but both of his parents have hypertension, as does his older brother. He denies any history of smoking, he drinks one beer on Friday nights, and he denies any illicit drug use. He works out three days a week with light weights and cardio on the treadmill or the elliptical. He reports he's been feeling fine, but he is nervous about his blood pressure because of his family history. He does admit to an increase in stress for the past several months at work, and he's not sure if things will improve because of management changes. So what are your thoughts so far? For me, a few things do stick out such as his family history of hypertension in his parents and his brother, his weight and BMI, which places him in the overweight category, and his increased stress at work. Now he goes on to tell us the reading at the pharmacy was 189 over 92 the first time, and then it went up to 196 over 94 the second time he checked it. He reports that he felt fine at the time But the anxiety increased after the second reading. Now we know it's not unusual to see a reading go up when anxiety may be present, which is why I will usually tell my patients to put their blood pressure machine down and walk away if they have an elevation with a plan to check it again in an hour or so once they've had a chance to focus on something else. One of the things we need to be concerned about when someone may have undiagnosed hypertension is if there's any target organ damage present, especially when we don't know how long their blood pressure has been elevated. Examples of target organ damage can include left ventricular hypertrophy, dysrhythmias, stroke, renal failure, peripheral arterial disease, and retinopathy. I would go through a detailed list of the possibilities with Mr. R to see if he has experienced any symptoms of target organ damage, as this impacts our plan and may require referrals to specialists. The next thing we need to do is determine if this is a primary hypertension, which is also known as essential hypertension, which is often due to genetics and the person's environment. Or could this be a secondary hypertension due to an underlying process, such as pheochromocytoma, uncontrolled hyperthyroidism, or maybe a side effect to a medication he has taken? It's important to note that over 90% of hypertension cases are primary, and the remainder of cases are due to secondary causes. Now let's go back to Mr. R. Again, he's a 45-year-old man. He is reporting he is having no symptoms of target organ damage and no other symptoms that could be indicative of secondary hypertension. He denies any over-the-counter medications or herbal products, so likely this is primary hypertension for him. Since we need the average of two blood pressure readings on two different days, we decide to advise him of lifestyle changes to implement, like the DASH diet, And encourage him to continue exercising and then we'll have him come back again in four weeks to recheck his blood pressure. I would also ask if he's willing to purchase a blood pressure cuff to have at home so that he could obtain some readings at different times of the day, several times in the course of the week and log them for us to review when he comes back. So let's fast forward one month and we have Mr. R back for his recheck. He reports making changes in his diet with removal of salt in prepackaged foods, and he's continuing to exercise three times a week. Unfortunately, his blood pressure in the office today is 154 over 86, which now gives us an average blood pressure reading of 148 over 86. What we need to do next is identify his goal blood pressure, and this is where things can get a little tricky as our guidelines differ. If we were to follow the JNC 8 guidelines, his blood pressure goal would be less than 140 over 90, which he is near with his current office reading. According to the ACC AHA guidelines, Mr. R has stage 2 hypertension, and his blood pressure goal would be less than 130 over 80. In terms of selecting a treatment option, Both guidelines do converge as the ACC AHA guidelines follows the same treatment algorithm that can be found in the JNC-8 guidelines. One of the things I do want to point out on the JNC-8 guideline is that the algorithm splits treatment options between two race options, black and non-black. Now, this is a guideline that is almost 10 years old and we know a lot more now than we did then in terms of the potential biases that may exist for minority populations based on hypotheses. But for now, these are the only guidelines that we do have to use, and it is going to take some time for them to catch up with updates. So going back and looking at JNC8, we have two directions we could go. If Mr. R were to identify as non-black, then we could select a thiazide diuretic, an ACE inhibitor, an ARB, or a calcium channel blocker. If he were to identify as black, then it is recommended that we would start him on a thiazide diuretic or a calcium channel blocker. As he does not have comorbidities that would push me in one direction or another to select a medication that could treat multiple comorbidities. I am inclined to start him with an ACE inhibitor, and I choose to prescribe for him lisinopril low dose, like 5 mg daily, and have him come back again in one month for a recheck. I'd obtain a baseline potassium and creatinine at the visit today, and then I would also have him repeat it again in two weeks for monitoring. Now let's do a quick fact review on ACE inhibitors, as there is important information to be considered when prescribing these. These should not be prescribed for patients who have bilateral renal artery stenosis or someone who has a single kidney with renal artery stenosis, as it can cause acute renal failure. It may cause hyperkalemia, which is more likely to occur if the patient has renal insufficiency, or diabetes or it may occur, adjunctively, if the patient is taking a potassium supplement or a potassium-sparing diuretic. Thus, we need to be monitoring that potassium routinely, including baseline at initiation, about two weeks after starting the medication, and then usually one to two times per year or as needed for dose adjustments. ACE inhibitors are probably most well known for their side effect of causing a cough, as well as the risk of angioedema, of which we have to be sure to provide good patient education on what to look for. This farm class is also contraindicated during the second and third trimesters of pregnancy due to the risk of fetal hypotension, anuria, and renal failure. There is also some research showing that exposure in the first trimester can cause an increased teratogenic risk, so it would be best to avoid this medication class altogether for someone who is family planning and should be thoroughly discussed with patients who are childbearing age. For these patients, it would be best to pre-plan and adjust the medication treatment plan to something that is safer for them to be taking during their pregnancy, such as labetalol. So let's switch gears and let's go back to Mr. R again. He's our 45-year-old male patient that we've been seeing. A month has gone by and he's coming back for his follow-up. He reports to us that he purchased a blood pressure cuff to have at home and according to the history, his blood pressure has been ranging 124 to 132, over 68 to 78. He denies any lightheadedness or dizziness and he's pleased with how well he is doing. His baseline creatinine and potassium were also noted to be within normal limits. The only thing is he's now developed a cough, but he's not sure if it's the medication or allergies. So now what do we want to do? The side effect of a cough with ACE inhibitors can be pretty annoying for some and not as bothersome for others. For some, it does resolve within a couple of weeks and for others it does continue on. And strangely, it's not something that only occurs with the initiation of the medication. It may happen after they've been taking the ACE inhibitor for some time. For those whom the cough does not resolve, we can switch them to an angiotensin receptor blocker or an ARB such as losartan or valsartan. These are more selective to block angiotensin effects than the ACE inhibitors but offer a similar benefit profile. There are similar side effects, such as cough and angioedema, but it is less common with the ARBs. They do, however, share the same contraindications for pregnancy, which is important to remember. And another important thing to know is that ARBs and ACE inhibitors should not be prescribed together due to the risk of toxicity. So. Let's say we decide to switch Mr. R and we put him onto Losartan 25 milligrams. We check his creatinine and potassium to make sure no deviations are occurring from his baseline levels. And we advise for him to continue with monitoring his blood pressure at home. And we have him come back again in one month. During the return visit one month later, he reports his cough did resolve within a week or two after stopping the ACE inhibitor. His blood pressure readings have remained at a goal of 130 over 80 or less, and he reports feeling generally well with less anxiety about the situation. Given the results, we decide that a three-month follow-up appointment would be appropriate with instruction to call if he has any problems or questions. So let's go on to our second case. Now we're gonna meet Miss A. She's a 60-year-old female with a known history of diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and hypertension. She is a former patient who moved out of state one year ago, but recently returned to care for her elderly mom. Prior to moving, she had good control of her hyperlipidemia with atorvastatin 20 mg, good control of her diabetes with metformin 1000 mg twice daily, and also with her hypertension using lisinopril 10 milligrams and chlorthalidone 12.5 milligrams. Unfortunately though, she has not been taking her meds for the past three months as she could not establish care with a new provider and was unable to get refills. She reports overall she's feeling fine and she denies any symptoms of target organ damage, including chest pains, shortness of breath, vision changes, or headaches she does admit experiencing an increase in stress with the move her mom's deterioration of health and also some financial concerns and all of this has led her back unfortunately to smoking which she is reporting a half pack per day for the past two months her blood pressure in the office is 158 over 92 her pulse is 82 her height is 5 foot 4 inches And her weight's 210 pounds, which gives us a BMI of 36 and classifies her with obesity. Okay, so where do we want to start with Miss A? It sounds like an unfortunate situation she's going through with lots of stress. Given that her previous regimen was controlling things, I would restart her on that same combination of medications and dosages. Check a basic metabolic panel and albumin to creatinine ratio for albuminuria, which would be an indicator of kidney disease, and also have a conversation about smoking cessation if she is receptive. My follow-up plan would have her check her blood pressure at home and come back in one month. So we're going to fast forward one month, and we have Miss A, our 60-year-old female patient, coming back for follow-up. She reports everything is the same, her stress level has not changed, so she's really not been able to do anything to stop smoking, and has been doing some stress eating. She is, though, taking her medications as prescribed. She's checking her blood pressure a couple of times, but the readings were in 150s to 170s range over 80s to 90s range, which scared her, so she stopped checking. She has not been able to start any exercise regimen due to her mom's needs, so there's not been any weight loss to report. In the office today, her weight has gone up two pounds, which now makes her BMI 36.4. Her blood pressure is 174 over 92, and 168 over 90 on repeat. So what do we want to do next to help her? It's easy to recognize Miss A has a lot going on and that we need to consider all contributing factors, including her habits, her mental health, and her comorbid class 2 obesity with the type 2 diabetes. While the topic of this podcast is specific to hypertension, this would be a great example of when to use team-based care if possible. I would recommend referring Ms. A to a diabetes care and education specialist as they are trained to support patients in making lifestyle changes. With a team approach, we could work together to help Ms. A address lifestyle changes to help improve her blood pressure readings. First, I would readdress the smoking and see if she's ready to try quitting, being sure to explain the concern the long-term consequences, and the connection between the cigarette smoking and her hypertension. Second, I would work with her on diet and exercise, educating her on the DASH diet, which is effective for improving blood pressure, and also potential exercises that she could do in a smaller time increment, but still see benefit in the long run. She would be a great candidate for obesity treatment, with a GLP-1 RA, as this is recommended for patients with type 2 diabetes who have a BMI of 27 or higher and who need to lose weight. And also, it will have the added benefit of addressing her cardiovascular risk factors. I would also address her stress and recommend that we start her on treatment with an SSRI, as well as refer her for counseling. Hopefully if she accepts treatment for stress and anxiety, she will be able to maximize her lifestyle changes. If we look at her blood pressure medications, we have room to titrate upward for better control. I would bump her lisinopril up to 20 milligrams with the chlorthalidone increased to 25 milligrams and return back to her discussion for her to monitor at home as long as it doesn't worsen her anxiety and a plan to recheck her again in the office in one month while also checking her basic metabolic panel during our visit today and then again in a month given the increase in her dosing. Now let's do a quick fact review on thiazide diuretics. Chlorothalidone has a longer half-life and research has shown it to reduce cardiovascular disease which makes it a preferred option over the other thiazide drugs. Routine lab monitoring includes sodium and potassium due to the risk of hyponatremia and hypokalemia. Additionally, they may cause an elevation to uric acid, so they should be used cautiously with any patients who have gout but are not taking treatment for it. It's important to note that thiazides are sulfonamides and there is a risk of cross-reactivity in someone with a sulfa allergy So, they should be monitored for the same possible allergic reaction if a thiazide is taken. Back to Miss A. Two weeks go by, and we receive a call from her because her blood pressure is still staying in the 150s to 170s range over 80s to 90s, despite the dose increase. We have her bring in her blood pressure machine to be checked for calibration. And we find that it is within two to five points of our cuff. I find it's always important to consider that there is a possible factor for elevated readings as blood pressure machines can lose calibration and provide inaccurate readings. So I always double check machines against my cuffs to make sure that they are comparable. We also would want to confirm that the cuff fits her arm appropriately As a cuff that's too small can falsely elevate the blood pressure. So with this new information, we advise to increase her lisinopril to 40 mg daily, which is the max dose. We continue the chlorothalidone at 25 mg daily, and we follow up as scheduled in two weeks. At that appointment, her blood pressure is now 168 over 94 and 164 over 94 on recheck. She reports she is more concerned about the readings and has scheduled an appointment for counseling as her mom continues to require more care, so she wants to be able to help her. She has also been able to decrease her smoking to a quarter pack per day, and she feels motivated to quit gradually as it is still providing some stress relief for her. She has also been able to arrange for a neighbor to stay with her mom for 30 minutes a day so that she can go for a walk for exercise. So let's first congratulate Miss A on the efforts and changes she's made. These are huge given her circumstances. Yet despite these wonderful changes she's done, she is still dealing with a blood pressure that's not responding to treatment. As we have max dosing for the lisinopril and clorthalidone, we now need to introduce a third agent. If we follow our JNC8 algorithm, our options include a calcium channel blocker, such as amlodipine or deltiazam. For Ms. A, I would select to start her on amlodipine 5 milligrams and have her continue the same home monitoring. The new regimen she has for her lifestyle changes and come back to see me again in one month. While I have not mentioned it previously, I do want to note with each of these visits, I am continuing to assess for the presence of any target organ damage developing. So we move forward a month, and Ms. A, our 60-year-old female patient, is coming back for follow-up. Her home readings are showing slight improvement with a range of 150s to 160s, but still a diastolic range of 80s to 90s. She continues to be free of any symptoms of target organ damage and reports she has started counseling, which she feels is helping. She has been able to decrease further to three cigarettes per day, and she is now walking 30 minutes a day. We can see a positive impact from these changes on her weight as she's now down to 203 pounds, which we of course congratulate her about. At this point, we decide to increase her amlodipine to 10 milligrams a day, which is max dosing, and have her come back again in one month. Unfortunately though, at that one month follow-up, we do not see a significant improvement, and she is staying above her blood pressure goal of less than 130 over 80. At this point, Miss A is dealing with resistant hypertension as she is on the max dosing of three agents, including one that is a diuretic. In addition to continuing to support Miss A with her smoking cessation, weight loss, and diet and exercise changes, we have to refer her to a hypertension specialist for further evaluation to determine what other factors could be contributing, such as a secondary hypertension that has developed on top of her primary hypertension. Before we wrap up, I wanted to take a few minutes to review hypertensive emergency versus hypertensive urgency. For both of these diagnoses, the diagnostic blood pressure is a systolic reading that is more than 180 and or a diastolic reading that is more than 120. Where they differ is the presence of target organ damage that is seen with hypertensive emergency and the lack of target organ damage with hypertensive urgency. Now, the presence of a blood pressure reading that's more than 180 over 120 is alarming, and quite frankly, frightening, especially for newer providers. I've seen varying levels of comfort to address a hypertensive urgency in the office, often with the patient being sent to the emergency department for evaluation. In the setting of a blood pressure reading that is over 180 over 120, Findings that are concerning for target organ damage and warrant evaluation in the emergency department would include the presence of an acute head injury or trauma, any generalized neurological symptoms such as agitation, delirium, seizures, or visual disturbances, any focal neurological symptoms, the presence of a fresh flame hemorrhage, exudate, Or cotton wool spots or papilledema on the eye exam, any presence of nausea and vomiting, any reported chest discomfort or pain, any acute severe back pain, any dyspnea, pregnancy, or the use of drugs that can produce a hyperadrenergic state. While hypertensive emergency requires hospitalization and IV medication, it is possible to treat hypertensive urgency in the outpatient setting by reinstituting antihypertensives that the patient may have stopped or increasing their doses. There are two treatment options that can be taken to treat patients who have not previously been treated for hypertension. One would be to start a combination of two long-acting agents, such as a diuretic and a calcium channel blocker, or an ACE inhibitor. The second option would be to start an agent that would have a quicker response, such as labetalol, which is a non-selective beta agonist that targets beta cells throughout the body, or clonidine, which is a centrally-acting alpha agonist. If option two is selected, The plan would be to monitor the patient in office for a couple of hours to see how their blood pressure responds, with a goal to transition them to longer-acting options and close follow-up over the next 24 to 48 hours. So that brings us to the end of our session. I thank you for joining me for this case study review on management of hypertension.